Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. And with that, let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading, coming from Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under your feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. This is when God makes a covenant with Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make the nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for perpetual holding, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been watching during the first few weeks of the new year, you know we've been doing a new sermon series called Brave New World. This is based on the title of the 1932 Aldous Huxley science fiction novel of the same name. And the reason why I've called it Brave New World is because in his book, he imagines a future that has been transformed by technological innovation. And that is the world that we are entering into. Over the next 10 to 20 years, we are going to experience a technological revolution that is going to change the very foundations of our world. From genetic engineering to artificial intelligence to the colonization of other planets, we are going to find ourselves looking at ways that technological innovation is going to transform the way that we interact with each other 
and the world around us. And so each week, what we've been doing is we've been looking at each one of these innovations that are coming our way. And we're asking the question, how are these innovations going to impact us? What are they going to do to the world? And what are the ethics behind them? Then we're turning them around and we're asking the question, how is the Christian faith going to interact with these innovations? What does the Christian faith have to offer in terms of helping us navigate these innovations as a society? And far from being obsolete, I really feel that the Christian faith does have a lot to offer in this brave new world. Now, we've come to the last of the sermons in this series. It was only a five-week series designed to last the whole of January. And I know that many of you are probably relieved that we're coming to the end of it. But today, I hope to help you understand why we've been doing this series all along. Because I've had a lot of questions from people as to why we've been engaging in this particular material. And I'm hoping I'm going to bring it all together for you today. Last week, if you watched, we talked about how technological innovation is going to change our bodies, our minds, and even human consciousness. Today, we're going to talk about how technological innovation is going to allow us to move to other planets, specifically to Mars. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, you probably know that the goal of the United States federal government, as well as private companies like Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin or Elon Musk's SpaceX, is to get to Mars. Now, the problem is, is that most experts feel that it's going to take us until about 2040 before we can actually have real humans walking on the planet. So we're a ways off from actually being able to get there. But Mars is really a fascinating planet because even though today it is a barren wasteland with a lot of cold, dry desert, the fact is about three billion years ago, it was a planet much more like Earth. It had a very robust atmosphere with lots of flowing water. And in fact, you can see a lot of that flowing water in the remnants of the various dried up river channels and lake beds that cover the planet. Scientists are not entirely sure exactly how Mars ended up being the way that it is right now. And there's many theories that have been bandied about. One of the ones that I prefer is, has to do with Mars's core. So the core of Mars, it actually cooled off many billions of years ago. And this is important because the planet that you're standing on right now actually has a very hot molten core. The core of Earth is very active. It's so hot that in comparison with the crust, it creates a magnetic field. And that magnetic field actually present, prevents a lot of the radiation from the sun and from interstellar space from hitting us. And so that's the reason why we don't die from radiation poisoning is because of the magnetic field around the Earth. If the Earth's core were to cool off, then that radiation could come in and affect us here on this planet. And another byproduct of that is that slowly over time that radiation would scoop away the atmosphere that's on Earth and we would end up being a lot more like Mars. Now we don't know for sure that's what happened, but there was some event that caused Mars to go from a planet like ours to the planet that it is now. And one aspect of Mars being without an atmosphere in the way that we have it is that it's 100 times thinner than our atmosphere here on Earth. And what atmosphere Mars does have is comprised of 96% carbon dioxide. So it's not really breathable by us. Another element of the atmosphere being so thin is that Mars is very cold. The average temperature on Mars is negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. So it is really, really cold. Not very livable for us 
as human beings. Although I will say that at the equator during the summertime, the temperature can get up to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's not exactly beach weather, but you can walk around outside and enjoy the day. A Martian day is called a sol. It's comprised of 24 hours and 39 minutes. So it's very close to the rotation that we experience here on Earth. But the seasons on Mars are actually twice as long because Mars is twice as far out from the Earth. And because it is so far away, you have to deal with summers that are twice as long, but winters that are twice as long as well. One fun aspect of Mars is the fact that the gravity is much less. If we could go to Mars, you would become like Michael Jordan is here on Earth. You could literally jump over a car. And in fact, the gravity is so much less that the dream of many humans to be able to fly like a bird, you could actually do that on Mars because if you could attach the right wings, you could actually fly over there because gravity is so much less than it is here. Now, Mars is not the perfect planet for us. It's not a perfect planet for sustaining life, but of all the planets that are in our solar system, it has the best potential for harboring complex life forms like ourselves. The problem with Mars is that it's really far away, an average of about 108 million miles. And so it's important to know that that's one of the biggest impediments to us being able to get there. Sometimes it's a little further away, sometimes it's closer, but the shortest that it is from us happens once every two years where our rotations are close to each other. If we were to send a rocket with human beings in it to Mars on that particular day, it would take about 240 days or eight months for us to get there, which is a long time for a group of five or six astronauts to be cramped in a very small space. But let's assume for the moment that those astronauts have the mental versatility to be able to deal with the cramped conditions and the long travel time. The biggest issue they face once getting to Mars is actually landing on the planet because we have a pretty spotty track record when it comes to actually landing on Mars. We've sent, over the last 60 years, some 50 rockets towards Mars, and only a third of them have actually been able to land on the red planet. Some of them have actually missed the planet entirely, which you could imagine would be awful for an astronaut to actually go beyond the planet. And others have just crashed into the Martian surface. But let's assume for the sake of argument that we are able to come up with a technology that allows people to land their rocket on the Martian surface. At that point, there's a lot more that they have to overcome. There's many barriers to actually living on that planet because they need on Mars what they have here on Earth. They need air, they need water, food, they need shelter and clothing. Let's begin with water because it's one of the most important things that we have here on Earth. So if you know anything about water, water is actually quite heavy when you start to accumulate it. So it would be impossible for them to be able to take water with them all the way to Mars to have enough to live on. And as I told you, all the water that used to be on Mars is gone from the surface, but that doesn't mean that the water is entirely gone. So 60% of the Martian soil is actually made up of water, and the Mars orbiters, the satellites that go around Mars, they have actually found large reservoirs of water underneath the surface, just like here on Earth. And when you look at the Martian poles, what you see is that there's large amounts of water ice at the poles. Now, that water ice, if you were to melt it, it would actually cover most of the Martian surface and about 30 feet 
of water. So water is really plentiful on Mars. The issue that you run into is that it's so cold that it would take a lot of energy to be able to utilize it. And the astronauts will not have that energy with them. So perhaps the best way for those astronauts to actually get a hold of the water they need is by taking it from the atmosphere. Because even though the atmosphere is very thin, it's 100% humid. And so the University of Washington, back in 1998, they actually came up with a very low-tech dehumidifier. And that low-tech dehumidifier actually allows them to suck in the Martian air and produce all the water they would need for the entire time that they're living on Mars. The second issue that we have to look at is how are they going to eat? Because there's no plants, there's no organisms on Mars for them to work with. And so all of the food would initially need to come from Earth. It would be dried, they would bring a store of food with them, and then food would be shipped every six months through rocket shipments that would then land on the surface. Now, one of the first things that those astronauts would need to do is they would be tasked with creating a hydroponic farm to be able to grow vegetables. Very important to be able to eat actual nutritious food. So essentially, they would create a greenhouse, they would plant seeds, and eventually that would account for 20% of the Martian diet, be 20% of what those astronauts have to eat. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how are they going to build a greenhouse? And what are they going to live in when they're there? Well, initially, they would likely live in inflatable pressurized buildings. But that can only last so long because those buildings, they can only withstand so much of the radiation from the sun and from interstellar space. And over enough time, what will happen is the astronauts will get radiation poisoning and get very sick. So after a while, they're either going to have to go underground, which is a possibility, or they're going to have to build structures with very thick walls. And interestingly enough, NASA has already thought of a solution to this problem. So it just so happens that the soil on Mars is very good for making bricks. And how would you have known that, right? It's all red. You would think that, yeah, of course it would work. But of course, here on Earth, what you need to make bricks is a kiln and they don't have access to that kind of energy. So NASA has come up with this plastic polymer that you can add into the Martian soil that can help them to create these bricks. And they can build buildings with these bricks and it will actually deflect the radiation that comes in from interstellar space and from the sun. Once they have those buildings all erected and set up, the only thing that they'll lack is oxygen. And they've already thought of that as well. So even though the Martian atmosphere is very thin, as I said, it's made up of 96% carbon dioxide. So it's CO2. 78% of that molecule is oxygen. So there is a man at MIT. His name is Michael Hecht. He created a machine called MOXIE, which essentially acts as a reverse fuel cell. It takes in the Martian atmosphere, and it strips out the carbon, and it pushes out oxygen. So the astronauts who are living there, they'll have all the oxygen that they will need to survive on. The only thing that's really left is the clothing. And this is something that we don't often think about, but the Earth's atmosphere, it pushes about 15 pounds of pressure on us at all times. And if you were to go and land on Mars and you were to take off your spacesuit, there would be no atmospheric pressure. So essentially you would fall apart. That's the nice way to put it. 
So they've had to come up with a spacesuit that would be able to compensate for this. And there's a woman at MIT, clearly these people are very smart, who has come up with a spacesuit. Her name is Dava Newman, and this is her showing off the spacesuit at a TED conference. It would provide enough pressure so that your body would stay together and also deflects radiation, and it will keep you warm. So aside from having the necessary rocket to take us to Mars, the fact is, is that we already have all the technology we need to be able to live on Mars. The larger question is, what are we gonna do when we get there? What's the goal of going to Mars? And there's really two ways that this can go. One way is that you can end up going there and it'll be like the moon. So you go there, you land on the moon, you spend some time and you come home. Or the other thing that will happen is we're gonna go there to live perpetually, which means that we are going to colonize the planet. And if we're going to colonize the planet, that means we need to completely re-engineer the, the atmosphere and the planet to be able to sustain human life. Now, I know that might sound kind of crazy, but we do have the capacity and the technology to be able to do this. So the biggest issue with living on Mars is that it is far too cold and the atmosphere is far too thin. So you need to fix those two things immediately. And so what that means is you need to warm the planet up. Now, we're very good at warming the planet. We do that here. You do that by pumping carbon into the atmosphere. It's not hard to do on this planet because we have fossil fuels. On Mars, it's a little bit more complicated. And the best way to do this would be to melt the polar ice caps because those polar ice caps, they contain a lot of trapped carbon. And so one of the people who I watched in order to get all of the information for this sermon, he recommended creating a very large solar sail that could essentially reflect the sun's light to the poles of Mars, and it would melt that ice down and release the carbon. Now, as a side note, I just want you to know that that's the reason why the poles melting is such a big deal. It's not just that it's adding water to the sea and raising the sea levels. It's that it's releasing extra carbon into the atmosphere, which then heats up the Earth even more. We don't want that here. What we do want that on is Mars. So it would only take about 20 years for the temperature on Mars to start to rise. And it would be gradual over time, but that would thicken the atmosphere and it would help to prevent all of that harmful radiation to come in. And eventually, after a shorter period of time, you could actually go outside a little bit more with those spacesuits and not have to worry so much about getting radiation sickness. Now, as time goes on and as the water melts more, what that means is all those old channels, they'll start to have water running through them again. And once they have water running through them, that will allow for us to be able to plant food. And that means we can actually survive on Mars. We could actually live there very much long term. After about 200 years of heating up the planet, it'll feel a little bit like British Columbia. So it's going to be kind of cold, damp, and wet. But it will be more livable. And so when you're indoors at that point, you will be able to take off the spacesuit. Because that spacesuit that Dava Newman created, you're going to have to pretty much wear that all the time unless you're in a pressurized building. But we should, at that point in time, there will be enough atmospheric pressure that you could take it off indoors. Within a thousand years, the atmosphere will be robust enough that not only can you walk around outside without a suit on, but you should be able to breathe the atmosphere. And I know this might be hard to believe, but it is likely that my great-grandchildren, not my children's children, but my children's children's children, 
they will have the option to be able to move to Mars if they want to. If they have the resources to afford a ticket, they could actually go there. And so what this means is eventually Mars will be like here on Earth. It'll have houses, it'll have schools, hotels, restaurants, bars, it'll have movie theaters. Everything that's here on Earth will be on Mars. And of all the technology that I've talked about throughout this sermon series, I can tell you that this is going to be the most disruptive technology in our lifetimes because it is going to happen. There's no doubt about that. And at the same time, it is going to be super inspiring to everyone. I know that many people in our congregation, they were either children or young adults when we first landed on the moon. And I know that for many people, that was a huge moment for them, a huge moment in history. It was very inspiring that we could do anything. Think about how much greater it will be when we can actually land on another planet. People will be very inspired by that. And at the same time, it will show that we have become a spacefaring species. If we can live on Mars, if we are successful, what that means is there will never be an end to humanity. We will always be able to survive, either here on Earth, on Mars, or when we go on to other planets in other solar systems. The question that I think all of this raises for us is what exactly does this do to Christianity? And I think that for many people, they're probably sitting there saying, I don't think it does anything. It doesn't change anything about the Christian faith. But I think it might change a little bit more than you might presuppose. So this morning what we read is from the book of Genesis. And this is chapter 17. This is a very famous scene when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And it is in this scene where God for the first time chooses to associate with a very specific group of people. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you have the creation of the earth and the creation of Adam and Eve. And then by the time you get to Genesis 17, that's when God's zeroing in on Abraham and his descendants. Now, this particular moment in the Bible, most Christians don't realize, it's really the moment in the Bible because everything else flows out of it. After making this covenant with Abraham, Abraham has a son, Isaac, and then he, Isaac will have a son, Jacob, and Jacob will give birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Israelites, they are the ancestors of the Jewish people. And the Jews trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. Now, we as Christians, we, of course, we, we follow Jesus, and Jesus was Jewish. Therefore, he traces his lineage all the way back to Abraham as well. And in the New Testament, what we see from the Apostle Paul is that he tells us that if you follow Jesus, if you are a Christian, but you are not Jewish, the reason why you're following Jesus, what he does for you is he gives you access to Abraham's covenant with God. By being a follower of Jesus, you become, in essence, an honorary Jew. So, essentially, it moves through this chain. God creates the earth. And then from the clay of the earth, God creates human beings. And then God focuses in on one of those human beings, Abraham and his descendants. And then among those descendants, we have Jesus. And Jesus, he allows all the rest of the people on the earth to be saved or to be part of Abraham's covenant. So the question that this raises is, and you'll notice from my slides that I underscore earth again and again. What happens when we leave the earth? Does the covenant still matter? Does it still count? 
Because something that you may not realize is that the moment that human beings leave Earth and they start colonizing other planets, they will no longer be human beings as you know them right now. Slowly, over time, they will evolve into a different species. So their genes are going to react to their environment. Their genes are going to adapt to the circumstances in which they find themselves. And so, as a result, they will end up breaking off of us and becoming a completely different species. In the same way that we broke off from Homo erectus and became Homo sapiens, they will break off from us and they will become Martian humans. So, you might be saying, well, why does that matter? What difference does that make? Well, it matters because the entire Bible was constructed around humans living on earth. Look at what it says in the psalm. The psalm says, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it comes back to this idea of the earth again and again and again. And in fact, the promise of the covenant of Abraham, it comes through the lineage of Adam and Eve. It is promised to the descendants of Adam and Eve. The people who end up going to Mars, they will no longer be the descendants of Adam and Eve. They will be the descendants of the first people to have children on Mars. They will be the proverbial Adam and Eve to them. They will be the ones to start that lineage. And so the question becomes, do these Martian humans need Jesus in the same way that we need Jesus? The Bible says that the humans on the earth need Jesus to get by, but do the Martian humans? What about when those humans on Mars eventually leave Mars and go to other planets and other solar systems? Do they need Jesus? Essentially, the question that is being posed right here, is Jesus just for us, or is Jesus truly for every civilization on every planet throughout the galaxy. And the psalmist actually provides an answer to this question. It's a very interesting answer that he provides. This is what he has to say. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? So in comparison with the vastness of the universe. We are infinitesimally small creatures. Really, the fact that we exist at all is rather remarkable. But the fact is that if what the Bible says is true, if God created us and if God loves us, then that love is not just for the human beings on this planet or for the creatures on this planet, but for all creatures that exist throughout the galaxy, throughout the universe. And so this message that Jesus preaches to us that our God is a God of love. This God that created everything is a God of love. And that this God is responsible for creating the universe and that the fabric of the universe is love itself. That message is not just reserved for us. That message really should be universal to every organism throughout the universe. So whether you're standing on Earth, Mars, or a completely different planet in a completely different solar system, that message of God's love still matters. And that's how I want to end this particular sermon series. I believe so very strongly in Jesus' message. I believe in it so strongly that I've dedicated my life to preaching it week in and week out. And so even though my faith in the institution of the church may waver, because the institution of the church is made up of people and people are flawed, 
My belief in Jesus' message is actually stronger than it's ever been. And the reason why is because I have seen how that message has the ability to change lives for the better. I've seen it again and again that this message can really make a difference. And so my hope and my prayer is that no matter where we go as human beings, whether it be here, Mars, or beyond the stars, I hope that that message will continue to be preached. And this allows me to talk about the reason why we have done this series. I've heard from so many different people asking, why are we doing this? Why does this matter? Why are we talking about things that are happening 10, 20, or even further out into the future? When right now we are dealing with a pandemic that is killing literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, that people are suffering economically where they have the, they're getting evicted from their houses, they don't have the ability to eat, and we are living in a time where we are more divided than we have ever been. We are probably more divided now, and the closest time to that has been the 1860s. That's the last time that we were this divided as a country. Why are we talking about all of these things that are happening in the future? And the reason why we've been discussing these things is because I want you to understand two things. The first thing is that the turbulence that you are experiencing right now, yes, it will eventually go away. But the technology that is coming our way is going to be a disruptor of our world in big ways. And so the chaos is not just going to subside, it's going to continue. And it's things that we have to prepare for. Which leads me to my second point. Which is that the one thing you can depend on, which is the whole goal of this sermon, is that you can depend on God's love. It is the one thing in our lives that we know is consistent. It is a constant in our lives. And so no matter what happens to you, no matter whether you're dealing with all kinds of chaos as a result of the pandemic, or whether we're dealing with chaos as a result of new technological innovation, that love can actually be the one thing that gets us through to the other side. I believe it's the one constant in our universe. It's the anchor point. So when I'm dealing with really difficult things in my life, and like you all, I've been dealing with those things a lot lately, I can tell you that that's the one thing that I connect with. It's the one thing that helps me to get to the other side of it. And I hope that you would feel that as well. I hope that you would feel connected to that love in your life. That you would feel that ability to connect with God in that way. Because to me, there is nothing else in this world that is going to be consistent. Everything is going to be tumultuous. Everything is going to be chaotic. But the truth is, is that that's the one thing we can hold on to. And that's the one thing that we need to show to other people in this world and worlds beyond ours. And so I hope and I pray that through this series, you've gotten a sense of the future, of where we're going. I hope it doesn't scare you. I hope that many of the things that I talked about come true and they help us for the better. But ultimately, I hope that you right now, in this moment, in the middle of this pandemic that has upended so many lives, that you will hold on to God's love. Because God wants the best for you, God cares for you, and God is never going to abandon you. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.